Hey everybody, welcome to Random Musings from the Clinical Trials Guru. I really want to thank you for listening. If you feel compelled to do so, make sure you subscribe, uh, leave a review, comment, share, whatever you feel like doing. Help me out trying to grow this podcast, trying to continuously deliver value. A couple of things before we get into the show, check out the links in the show notes to my CRA Academy, my CRC Academy, both of them doing very well as far as getting people jobs in the marketplace. Check those out. Also, if you need help getting studies for your site or anything else, or even launching a site, basically any help for your site, we have a low monthly fee consulting service where we have helped many clients become and continue to be successful site owners through our background efforts of business development and support staff. Text me 949-415-6256. Please check out the links in the show notes as well for the book, The Comprehensive Guide to Clinical Research. It's been selling really well, getting very well received by the community. Thank you guys so much for that. Also check out the YouTube member page. Join this channel to get perks. That's my YouTube uh, membership. It's 10 bucks a month. You get a monthly mastermind exclusively. It's a Zoom call every month with other YouTube members. Uh, You also get weekly videos exclusive to the YouTube members on how to use social media to improve your opportunities in life sciences. So check that out. Really means a lot to me. And thank you so much again for listening and enjoy the show. Hello, Guru Nation. How are you guys doing? Welcome back to another episode. I've got Kunal Sampat on. He's Director of Clinical Operations uh, for Cerebell. He's up in the Bay Area in the San Jose, San Francisco, greater San Francisco, San Jose, mega, megapolis. Um, how's it going, Kunal? Good, Dan. How are you? Good. Thank you. Thank you for coming on. So Cerebell is where you work. You also have a Clinical Coach LLC. We're going to get into a little bit of that. You also have a podcast that you've been doing for, I don't know now, how many years has it been? Uh, It's been maybe three and a half, four years, four years maybe. Wow. What's the podcast called again? It's Clinical Trial Podcast. Perfect name. Clinical Trial Podcast, guys. So Clinical Trial Podcast. um, I listen. It's so well-produced. Like You have show notes. You have like transcripts. You have timestamp. Everything is like how a podcast should be right not like this one guys we're, we're but we're just throwing up a lot of shots over here on my end right we're volume kunal is like quality but now we got a quality episode for you guys too because it's not just me rambling for half an hour it's kunal we're going to talk director of clinical operations we're going to talk what that even means we're going to talk project manager how he survived being a project manager and we're going to talk about what he does to help others. So with that being said, uh, welcome, Kunal. Yeah, thanks, Dan. I also want to just thank you for just being an amazing resource for the clinical research industry and, and just all the work that you've done. Uh, you know, I, I know you said quantity versus quality. All that is is just um, blur at the end of the day, at the end of our lives. And I just think the impact you're having is is massive. So, so thank thanks you for, for, that. for doing what you're doing. 
Thank you for that. I like that definition. Impact. It makes me feel better. Like, hey, just throw these things out. If you make an impact, if you make an impact, like one episode a month or one episode an hour, it doesn't matter as long as the impact is there. I like that, Kunal. There's a book in there. We could write a book on that topic. Um, So, Kunal, uh, can you just give, like, for the people who don't know you, because it's been a while since you've been on, can you give, like, a three-minute Cliff Notes version of your career and kind of how you get to where you are right now? Sure. So I actually started my career in clinical research at ParXL. A lot of people probably know about ParXL. It's a clinical research organization. Uh, I started it on the East Coast at the main office. I was working at Perceptive Informatics, which is part of the ParXL family doing medical imaging, uh, CRA kind of work, but in-house CRA. And um, from there, I started working in Abbott Labs, uh, where I worked for almost 12 years uh, managing clinical trials as a program manager, project manager, and uh, mostly all my experiences in medical devices and cardiology medical devices. And then most recently, I've been working at a startup uh, that uh, you know Dan mentioned about, uh, Cerebell, that does medical devices, which is EEG-based uh, you know, medical diagnostic medical device. Um, I also cool. teach clinical trials at San Jose State University, so that's something I've been doing in addition to the podcast that I host. Uh, you know, my background is in engineering and computer science, actually, <laughs> and uh, you know, I studied nonprofit administration and some other courses, you know, in statistics and so on to, to just kind of get my get my ball bearings around the medical field because as you can tell as an engineer you know I didn't really have that exposure or that learning uh, on the medical side so so I had to kind of learn the ropes as as uh, as I progressed in my career wow so you're slowly on your way to becoming a generalist with all these different skill sets that you're picking up here and there is that what led you to consulting or what is that about um, yeah, generalist. I like that word. Uh, yeah, I, I do like the, the breadth, but also like keeping the depth, like in clinical trials and, and regulatory affairs in some ways. Um, you know, I, I'm very passionate about teaching and this is what kind of why I started the podcast. And I, and I also teach at San Jose State University. Um, I'll be honest, I haven't done a whole lot with my consulting because just my, my day job has been quite busy. <laughs> uh, but I have been, uh, you know, just, taking on opportunities as they come by, you know, helping uh, organizations, you know, I've worked on a regulatory affairs project recently, uh, you know, doing some consulting work for them, uh, just to kind of have a variety in my experience. So, you know, and I can learn and contribute more uh, to the, to the industry. Wow. Okay. So that's, that's big time. I know regulatory affairs is in such high demand right now. What are you seeing in like 2021? Hard to believe this year's almost over, but this has been a insanely busy year, right? Yeah, yeah, it has been. It's been pretty hectic. I and I think it's been very hard to hire people as well. I'll be honest. Uh, I think CRAs and uh, just clinical research professionals, it's just hard to find good people with skills and talent and attitude and the hustle and and wanting to. You know, I think people are changing jobs more frequently. I find like I'm noticing that quite a bit. Um, yeah, and it's been just busy. I think health has been more important than ever, and partly because of I feel COVID, but also just the the innovation that's happening. You know, with at least on the medical device front, I mean, with machine learning and AI, and like it's all the industries are kind of really 
uh, going upside down in some ways, or is that, I don't even know if that's the right word, but you know, <laughs> topsy-turvy, yeah, topsy <laughs> the, the old technology is now kind of being accelerated or being morphed into the, you know, this new technology, for example, the EEG product that I'm working on, you know, we have EEGs, like there is hospitals have EEG systems, which is a, uh, which measures brain waves, you know, and tells you whether or not you're having seizures. But now with uh, machine learning, you can actually train the computer to, to read if whether or not you're having uh, a seizure. So you don't need, I mean, you need a doctor to give the final clinical diagnosis, but the computer can in many ways say whether or not it's, you're having a seizure. So these devices are being trained to read your brain waves and you can, you know, do it in a matter of five minutes versus waiting for an EEG tech to show up at your door, you know, at the hospital for two hours to four hours, you know, which is a very long time if you're having a seizure and, and you're not knowing what to do or your doctor not knowing what to do. So I'm just amazed. And I think this is transforming a lot of different like sectors within or, or not sectors, but different therapeutic areas, I think, in, 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 in medicine. Um, and like I said, COVID also kind of just increased emphasis on the health field, you know. Um, yeah, it yeah. strained the resources too. I think one of the reasons why <clears throat> we're having, and I mean, this is the the vaccine mandate is just something very recent. So it has nothing to do. I know a lot of people are commenting on my Instagram and LinkedIn, like, hey, yeah, the industry is changing, but it's changing for the worse with the mandates and we have CRAs quitting. I'm not even going to get into that. Yeah, that's the, okay. Mm-hmm. The industry's been strained long before this. This that's is right. new, right? So I think COVID displaced a lot of jobs. I think COVID, because of all the COVID studies, yeah, like a lot of the best resources, sites, CRAs, coordinator went to COVID studies. Mm. But you have all these other studies that are still going on Ongoing, and like yeah. new stuff, right? Like EEG has nothing to do with COVID, yep. right? But you guys have studies. Like, you know, that's a new IND um or whatever it is for yeah it's not device. yeah well it depends on the type of device but in this case it's actually there's no ide involved which okay. is equivalent to an ind uh because it's a fda cleared medical device uh for clinical research use so you don't really need, and it's a diagnostic tool it doesn't need uh you're not actually implanting anything in the patient okay so, so there's less risk which means you don't need an ide versus if you if you needed uh there's more risk to the patients then you probably need an ide Okay. I'm just okay. oversimplifying it for for for, yeah. for our purposes, but it's really a class two medical device, so there is less risk relatively to you know. Usually, class three medical devices are the ones that have, need an ID. Mm-hmm. Or I a five ten k right. Five ten k. Yeah, this is a five ten k device, but it's okay. already FDA cleared. Mm-hmm. I gotcha. I gotcha. Yeah. yeah, I have. <laughs> there's a lot. There's so much to learn in this space. I helped somebody once on a 510k and i actually went through the process and we had to later call in some professionals to actually do it but it was t- i went through the whole thing like i did the whole the whole thing yeah. searching for the predicate device all that stuff there's so much exactly. to learn in this space guys <laughs> this is related to what we're talking about because you have covid now you have all this other stuff so we need more people working in research uh, what's been like, you've probably as a PM and now definitely as a director of operations, you've been in charge of other employees, right? Mm-hmm. Like what is one of the biggest things like to make somebody a successful clinical researcher, CRA or PM, like what are some of the things you look for when you're hiring or training? Like what is like, 
if you had to pick like a few things they absolutely need, everybody absolutely needs these skill sets, what would it be? Yeah, I'm actually not a technical skill set type of person. You know, I know people get hung up on like, oh, have you gotten your uh, ACRP certification or, you know, your SOCRA, whatever. And all those things are good. I actually, you know, I think in many ways, I, I would prefer if you didn't have much experience. <laughs> uh, you know, really? I, I lo- yeah, because I think uh, you, I think I was just reading this book by Adam Graham, Think Again. And he says when people know have little like have little knowledge, they tend to uh, have overconfidence, more, more confidence in their ability and their skills. They try to judge themselves better. Versus if they're, they're like absolute beginners, and they tend not to, they're more open to learning and, and actually you know being a better mm-hmm. uh, team member. So going back to your question, I think for me, um, you know, I'm really looking for somebody who can adapt to different situations because I feel like working for a big company and a small company, I know like nothing is constant and we're always like, forget about COVID for a second, but just, there's just a lot of change and in your responsibility will, will vary and there'll be different demands from you based on the, the season. So I think being able to adapt to different situations rather than having a whole, you know, like drama around, like, you know, you're being asked to do something differently. And I think you just kind of need to embrace it as quickly as possible. So adoption is very important. Whether it's technology, adopting to different people, adopting to different scenarios, challenges, I think all all around. Uh, The third, the second one is I would say attitude, I think is very critical. I feel like having a can-do attitude. Um, you know, I'm finding this and I'm observing this. I think people are just so quick to like, let's just outsource this. Let's just have somebody else do this. And, but like, are you actually taking the time to do it? Like, do you know how to do it? And are you (laughs) investing the time to learn new skills yourself? And I think that that can do attitude is, is really critical, uh, for me. And then, um, you know, the third skill I do appreciate, and I don't think everybody likes this, but it just being more like candid and having more open conversations with your your team and your manager. I think people are just afraid of the repercussions. Like they may be, you know, they may get demoted. They may, people may not like them. And, you know, all these issues come up. And I think it, that's more of a management issue. I feel like so many managers are not candid because they've been trained not to be candid. But I feel like there's a lot of value in you, you know, in being uh, open and transparent because it helps build trust and it helps move uh, clinical research forward at the end of the day. So I, I think those are the three, like top three things that are like kind of coming up on my mind right now as we're speaking. Those are good. And number two, and as far as the can-do attitude, I draw the parallel with the site owners. You know, we have we work with site owners across the country. I'm one myself, brand new startup, right? So I'm doing everything. Like there's a lot of value in having done the work yourself prior to hiring and training others. I tell my coordinator all the time, I've everything I'm asking you to do, I've done before. I know exactly what it feels like. I've done everything. But you have some site owners who start out and they're like, hey, I'm just going to hire people because I don't know how to do it. So I'm a higher experience coordinator. Well, that works too. You can be successful that way, but there is, like you said, value in doing it yourself, even if it's for three or six months, right? Yeah. Just actually doing it yourself. So you can write the SOP from a practical, pragmatic approach, not from like a academic approach. Like this that's is right. how a consent will be done. Well, that's very nice, but have you done one? 
That's uh, right. Because how do you know you can do this? That's right. Yeah, I, exactly. I think this is this is really important, and uh, not not just also the SOP, but just um, yeah, like you said, just being empathetic and understanding like how the work gets done. I think that's really critical. Um, yeah, I think a lot of people struggle with that because they they're just quick to say, "Oh, I, you know, like let's just give it to someone else to do it." <laughs> I yeah. love that. <laughs> give it to someone. You're number three, also from the willingness to communicate. I mean, like you said, usually that's a management issue. I agree with you. You have to make a culture as a manager. You have to make a culture of where people want to share, not just tell you what they think you want to hear. Um, having worked at big pharma and startup biotech right medical device who do you think has done a better job or do you think it's the same or does it vary as far as like creating this culture because the bigger i think the bigger the companies get the harder it is to keep that culture but that's right i don't know what your take on this is because i've never been in this situation i think it's a mess on both sides it's just this different kind of mess uh, you know, because I, I think in the big companies, uh, you know, there's always going to be some political jokers there trying to, you know, make things very hard to maneuver. Even if you're at a CRO, but you still have to work at a spot with a sponsor, there's always some sort of political thing going on with the big farms, big, any big company. Uh, with a small company, I think the issue is lack of experience and expertise uh, at the startup. Not a, like, you know, they have a smaller team, so they have fewer people. The, the caliber and the quality of uh, of decision making might not be as good as yeah. as uh, as a bigger company. Um, so I, I yeah I think I, I actually don't know <laughs> answer to your question. I feel like it's uh, I, I've always felt like you can never escape from your problems. Like you know you're gonna have some new challenges. You know sure. you leave one job to go to another job or one role to another role. There's always going to be something that's going to not be perfect. <laughs> always, always. Same exact thing when you're a site owner. You know, the the challenges when you're a new site is lack of resources, basically common denominator, lack of revenue to hire more resources. So it all falls on the owner's shoulders. When you get bigger, you get different things. Like you've got some coordinators. I had one client today. Okay. Actually, Chris talked to them. They have a coordinator that's been screen failing patients on purpose because they don't want more work, right? I mean, this is real stuff. Industry, you'll never hear this at a Socra or any of these SCRS mm -hmm. talking mm -hmm. about this stuff, but it's real, real problems that site mm -hmm. owner like, and this is a site that does well. And this is a problem yeah. now. They traded their problem from lack of resources to now motivating employees it looks like or training or finding in my yeah. opinion it's finding the right employees because that's not acceptable no matter what you're dealing that's with right. patients, patients who get benefit from a study that you're not letting them be in the study it's ridiculous because you're working too much i could go off on a rap but you're trading problems <laughs> you're trading one problem for another so speaking of problems that you have and fires you got to put out Project management, right? I get asked this all the time and I have no answers because I've never been project manager. Mm -hmm. I have so much respect for project managers because I don't know mm -hmm. how they do it all, right? Like anytime, is this true or false? 
um, anytime there's a problem with a site, a sponsor, a CRA, or just about any, like a vendor, the first person they complain to is the project manager. Uh, that is true, but I think <laughs> it's also a project management issue because it, it, if the project manager manages it or sets clear, how do you call this? I think the issue is project managers are not empowering their teams to do their job. So it, it, let me kind of slow down that, like said, say that very slowly. Basically, what happens is if you're a project manager and you, you know that these are some of the common problems that happen, like in your life, like say budget, right? Say there's a, there's a financial discussion with the clinical trial site and you're going back and forth. Uh, the, the contracts person is going back and forth with the site and, you know, the site is saying, oh, well, I can't, you know, I need $5,000. You're only paying 4,000. Then this contracts person will go to the project manager and say, well, this site is asking 5,000. And then the con and then the project manager, like, no, well, why don't you offer 4,500? And then the contracts person goes back to the site. And then the site says, no, I still need 5,000. And then the contracts person goes back to the project manager. They're just wasting time on emails, <laughs> communication, all this crap. So I think as a project manager, if you can set up a process where you are giving your contracts person the authority to make decisions like giving some parameters and saying here are the three tiers like if you if they come back with five thousand then go to up to four thousand three hundred if they come back with five thousand go back up to four thousand seven hundred and if nothing works just agree anything up to five thousand five hundred <laughs> so mm. as long as it's up to five thousand five hundred and that's the limit then then the crh or the contracts person can just agree to that budget and just move on and they don't have to come back to the project manager. I think the project managers are just themselves making it harder for them to do a good job or just being overwhelmed. You know, well, why? Because why? the way you explain it makes so much sense. But then why don't they do that? Like, Oh, it's about control. Because I think uh, the, the, the project managers may want to not lose control on their budget. You know, they're focused on, you know, the $1,000 that you're going to pay more on the startup fee. It's not a whole lot of money. I mean, yeah, it might be a lot of money for the project manager based on, you know, like their income, but for a big sponsor, even a small company, it's not like a big amount, you know, in the whole scheme of things. I think you're going to spend thousands and thousands of millions of dollars on running a clinical trial. Uh, you know, a million a day. Hundreds of thousands. <laughs> I mean, even a small clinical trial can be, you know, you know, a couple hundred thousand dollars. Like I'm just, you know, I'm giving very general information, but it can add up pretty quickly is what I'm trying to say. So I think you're counting pennies when you should be focused on the big dollars, hmm. uh, you know. So I think if a project manager kind of like knows, you know, their role is to really focus on the big ticket items, you know, and, and kind of really understand those wow. uh, rather than having to be on the minutiae. Because then you're just exhausting the hell out of, I mean, it's just so exhausting because you're like, like you said, you're constantly getting beat up by or asked questions by the team members. Yeah. Um, I don't know how they do it. Like as a contract CRA, the one, the few interactions I've had with a PM, you know, if I had an issue, I have to go to the PM. I almost feel bad to do it because I know all the other stuff they, they have to deal with. It's so be it. I mean, they got to figure this out. <laughs> you know, uh, you why know, don't why do they want to micromanage is it just inherently like what it takes to be in that role or are they given because, like like mm -hmm. a incentive from the sponsor like for example budget to save a thousand dollars does the sponsor give the pm incentive like hey you get a yearly bonus if you save like no 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 there's no there's no such thing that i'm aware of so why is the incentive like 
Well, they they kind of want. They feel like they have to make a decision, and they have to be good stewards of the cash mm-hmm. that they've been allocated to run this trial, and they don't want to burn the cash. So they're going to try to save every penny because then they feel like they're disloyal or doing a disservice to their organization wow. by paying, paying more. Um, I think one mindset shift for the project managers would be to always remember that the sites are the ones that are helping you succeed. If this trial is a success and if it enrolls really well, if there's less compliance issues, then it's because of that site coordinator. It's because of that site PI that helped you be successful. So if if that means paying them what's fair and what they're asking for based on whatever scenario or situation they're in, like maybe they're in a high job, you know, like they're in San Francisco, it's expensive and, you know, they're charging you $1,000 more per patient than in, you know, middle of nowhere, you know, that's not going to charge you that much. I'm just saying, I think if keeping that mindset really makes it easy for you to make decisions as a project manager, like on the financial side. I, I, the sponsors could care less, honestly. I, you know, I, I just feel like I've worked at Abbott and we just never, like that was never like a big, I mean, yes, money is important and patient costs are one third of the overall trial costs, roughly speaking. Um, so yeah, you want to not go over budget, but what would you do? Would you rather go over budget or, or would you rather end your trial on time? It's a question you have to ask yourself. Like, what is it that you want? Like, how much right. are you going to spin your wheels on uh, or like make a decision and move on? <laughs> right. So as a like a PM or like a director or like a CTM, right? Clinical mm-hmm. trial manager, mm-hmm. people in these kind of positions, um, are you like would a sponsor or maybe higher ups look at the metrics and say, hey, Kunal was involved in these three studies where we finished on time of versus someone else who didn't. And then of so course. they request you more often or of like, course. yeah, you got it. Yeah, I think people, I think you, if you're going to produce results for your organization, then your leadership is going to want you to take on more projects. And, and you are going to be the first person that comes to your mind because you're driving for results. Uh, yes, sometimes it's a little more expensive, but in the whole scheme of things, it's a wash uh, because you've, you've kind of come out ahead by, by really launching your trial faster and getting your product approved faster, <laughs> you know, getting it on the market faster. There's so many things, you know, right. that are high value than saving $1,000 in startup fee. <laughs> yeah, when you put it in that perspective, yeah, it makes a lot more sense. Yeah, I'm not trying to say like you just agree to everything that the site is saying, which is why you want some parameters that you're going to have, you know, uniform parameters. Um, I mean, I worked on a project not too long ago and, you know, our budget was like, say, $800 a patient. And now we're like, okay, well, once I came back and said it's too low, they said, well, the best we could do is $1,400 a patient. What are you going to (laughs) do? You know, they've, they've right. done all the math and they, they come back with saying, this is what it's going to cost. Mm. What is the sponsor going to do? They, they kind of have to make up their mind. If they really want the study to enroll, they need to readjust their, um, their, their, their budget to, to meet that requirement. Um, and honestly, like money is just, it's money. I mean, it, it's I just think, one lever. I think yeah, it, it is. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Because like, Using the example of the site, you know, who has like apparently overworked coordinator. I mean, 
makes no difference to them if that budget was a million a patient, you know, like maybe, well, maybe that amount would be enough for the owner to do the work themselves. <laughs> so maybe it would make a difference, but like within reason, you know, you're not going right. to get the, like a change just from 20% or 30%. I mean, right. still, do you have other, other issues involved, like coordinators needing to do the work uh, when you get involved, like as a PM or even like a, a director of like a clinical trial manager, for example, mm -hmm. let's say there's a site that is very behind on answering queries on study startup. They've just been behind on everything, but they enroll enough patients to where you can't give up on them. You need them, but they're just like very behind. What do you do? Like as a PM, you have, you've I would, been I would pause, I would pause enrollment and say, Hey, let's just take a break for two weeks so you can catch up and and get all your work done and then resume enrollment again it because your and i know people think oh my my boss or my leadership or the sponsor is never going to agree to this but would you rather have incomplete data or have more patience because your incomplete data is useless it's money down the drain right. you, you just give that site some breathing room let them catch up and then they can resume again and i think it should be a mutual decision with the site it shouldn't be something that the the trial manager takes it by him or herself. Like they need to have a conversation with the site and go through some options and say, well, well, does it make sense to pause your site? Does it make sense to add another resource, a research coordinator? Uh, do you want like a CRA from uh, RN to come and help you with any of the tasks that we can help you with? <laughs> uh, you know, it, it, you know, maybe it's, it could be a variety of things that you could do. Can we assign you a, uh, a part-time coordinator that you know can work with you mm. for a couple of weeks uh, or a couple of months so that you can get that extra support like just everything is on the table nothing is is off off the table so i because you know for that side it might hurt their ego if you say well one pause enrollment they're like well am i not good enough that you're going to stop enrollment at my site am i i'm doing so such good work and you're actually now telling me to stop you know, and they might they might take it very personally. So you kind of have to think through like all the different scenarios with them, and make a joint decision. Like, don't make the decision. I, I actually, I think I spend more time making joint decisions, and, and I have like obviously I have a direction that I want to head into, but but I'm actually more focused on the outcome and not necessarily the 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 options that we end up selecting <laughs> uh, yeah. as long as we get to that final outcome of complete data entry and high quality data and, and so on what if you have like a site let's say enrollment's over and you have a site that's done very well but now enrollment's over and so they're like old queries now aging queries mm. and just not being very responsive so it means the coordinator's probably being utilized for other studies that's that you right. have no control over like what would you do in that case have you had to have like heart to heart conversation with sites before like of course yeah so it's a very common problem i think it can happen uh so i think i think if you're thinking about this after the study is over it's too late <laughs> or after enrollment <laughs> is over because i think you should be thinking about it during the contract phase where all your payments are based on the completion of the case report form. So they're not getting paid if they're not completing the case report form. Okay, so that's number one. Well, say you screwed up on your contract, you, whoever, somebody did the contract, it wasn't set up that way. All the payments have been made and you still don't have the data that you need, right? 
in that case, I think you should definitely seriously consider visiting the site. <laughs> and you yourself, the PM? I, 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 yeah, I think you as a PM should visit the site. And you maybe you go with your CRA and and say, hey, coordinator and PI, you know, you know, we're concerned about the data. You guys have obviously enrolled so many patients. We want to make sure your every your your hard work and every patient you've enrolled in the study actually counts towards the towards the final data set, um, which obviously they want, right? They want their patients to count <laughs> uh, towards the data set. You know, we really need to come out and really have a plan. We need to have a joint discussion on how are we going to catch up on this this open items, and then maybe set up micro goals like at the end of a month, this is what we're going to do. At the end of two months, this is what we're going to be. At the end of three months, this is what we're going to be. Like, don't go in there and say, I need this to be done yesterday. Like, this is, it's not going to fly <laughs> if you do that. Right. But it, yeah, I think the PM needs to get their, themselves on the plane and fly out to the site. You really need to invest that time to wow. meet with the site. I, I mean, you could do a phone call and I've done phone calls before and they work just fine. But you probably need somebody else at, on the site from the sponsor, you know, physically at the site with, with, you know, there's some regional CRAs that could like be at the site. So the PM doesn't have to travel, but I'm telling you that thousand dollar trip is going to pay you huge dividends because you've now set the stage for what the expectations are. And then you kind of work towards that. Yeah. There's definitely some, there, there's definitely, um, like sends a strong message to the site when the PM comes in with the CRA or a lead comes in with the CRA and says, look, I mean, we got to fix this thing. This is that signals. This is not a normal event. Like you don't just go to any, every site <laughs> and yeah. uh, which sites have been best to work with in your experiences so far. Is it the AMC's academic medical center? Is it the small mom and pops? I, I think all of the projects that I've worked on just required academic medical centers, uh, not maybe also private institutes because we needed a cat lab and it was like a big infrastructure because if I was doing cardiology trials and we needed like, uh, you know, we needed a cat lab where they could perform the, the, the stenting procedure, for example. Right. So if they're, you know, but, but I think personally, in my experience, the big sites are terrible. Like the academic, like the big hospital names, they're just, wow full of i mean i i think they're very difficult to work with because they have very convoluted processes and people and teams and departments and legal you know reviews of the contracts i mean this is just it, they just make you go in circles uh for a very long time um so i find the smaller institutions are the worker bees but you still need like the the big names because you know your ceo your head of research or your marketing vp cares about having a, a big name hospital on the final paper that gets published. Yeah. It moves you know. the stock price. Yeah. yeah. Well, even if it doesn't move the stock, it, yeah, it gives up, it's a good impression. I mean, if it's a private company, it still gives like that, that wow factor. It's like, Oh, well you had, you know, you know, Vanderbilt on your trial, you know, it's like a right. big deal or you had, you know, you had Boston, you, you know, medical center on your trial or whatever the case may be. I'm not saying though any of the sites are bad. I'm just saying, <laughs> Uh, you know, just an example. Example, yeah. yeah. Um, but I, I think that I think this is a big mistake. I think the leadership makes at the sponsor side is they end up wanting these big names because, but then everybody wants these big names, right? So uh, you know, as a clinical trial manager, your job is to educate 
your your management it's like hey i agree we need big names but let's also have the small names on your on your trial list because it's the small names that are going to it's it's not that these people are less important they they just will contribute better because they're less they have more focus attention they have resources to to get a trial enrolled and this is all assuming that they have the the resources and the, the infrastructure to conduct the trial um but uh i'm a huge proponent of smaller centers because i just feel i could do more with them and get them like moving in the direction i'd like you know the the project to move yes i would tend to agree although not from a pm side standpoint but just from my limited experience as a contract cra and then as a consultant to sites like the smaller the better small is the new big i always tell people this now especially in 2021 world 2022 world going forward or this year is almost done guys 2022 is coming up um okay i think we covered some good topics i mean you know we can go on forever about the nuances of how to get sites to change their behavior and things like that um I mean, recruitment's always the biggest, one of the biggest things, right? Recruitment and retention. There's not really ways you can, as a PM or a director, I mean, there's only so many levers you can pull, right? Like you can activate more sites maybe. There's Um, many things you can do to boost recruitment, but that would be like a much longer conversation. (laughs) I just did an interview with this, uh, with Liam at the Endpoint podcast. So I think people can check it out. Uh, on patient recruitment, I think specifically we talked about. Um, I think there's a lot of things that PM can do. Actually, the PM has really? more. I think that if, if I was to like spend, like if I was a PM, I would spend 30% of my time on recruitment, 30% of time on the financials, and 30% of time on everything else. <laughs> uh, like operations and stuff? Yeah, exactly. Hmm. Um, or f- whatever, 40%. 33. Um, 30. <laughs> Yeah, uh, so what is like some levers just really quick real quick uh yeah obviously you said sites right you could um increase the number of sites you could increase the budget uh you could pay uh-huh. screen failures you could that you weren't paying before you could um you could set up teleconferences with sites like webinars and so on you could um, have better, um, you know, better quality. I think the quality of communication is also very terrible from the sponsor side, like updating sites on progress on your trials and where things are headed. Because that just tells the sites that your study is still alive. <laughs> uh, because otherwise, they, you know, sites are busy. They have a lot of trials going on. Uh, you could do site visits, things we talked about. As a PM, it was one trial I worked on. I visited 33 sites in like the course of the year. And just met with every site, kind of discussed the workflow at every site and really figured out what are the bottlenecks at that site and how can we improve the workflow to increase patient enrollment. Because every site is going to have slightly different issues that they're going to, you know, they're facing. So just kind of figuring that out. Um, yeah, I, I think just I try to avoid like... Um, blanket demands from sites when you're trying to boost patient recruitment like send me a screening log every week whatever i think that's i think maybe send me a screening log every week if you don't enroll one patient a week <laughs> uh, or something 
like that. So then at least then the ones that are enrolling a patient a week, they don't need to send you a screening log because right. they've already met their It's goal. an incentive to do it just to not do, do the screening log. Exactly. So that way it's kind of like, okay, it's a it's a relief for the, the sites that are meeting. Yeah. Because then if you get to Friday, you're like, hey, we better find somebody to screen just so I don't have to do this. Yeah, the other levers is just shutting down sites that have not enrolled any patients. Mm. I think that is a huge, that sends a big message to all these sites that, hey, you know, if you don't have your act together, mm. we're going we're gonna to really turn off enrollment and, and end our contract with your site. And that's okay. It, you put that in the newsletter? Or like, how do you say that in a nice way to still send that message? Uh, you actually have, a, you could create a, a what, what was the name? I'm trying to think about. Uh, basically, you you try to create a plan where you say week one we want you to do this, week two we want you to do this, week three we want you to do this, and after week four you still haven't enrolled a patient. Then let's kind of mutually agree that we will end your trial. But when you when you when you have your initial conversation with the PI and the RC, you set up a call and say, you know, it's been eight weeks, you haven't enrolled a patient. Can we do this? you know can we go we can probably go on for another four weeks we want to make sure that this project is actually of value to you and your site you're putting in a lot of effort you're screening patients but you're not seeing any results can we maybe hit certain milestones every week and if we're not headed in that direction maybe it's mutually beneficial for you guys to not be part of this trial mm. yeah? yeah and then they'll be like yeah why not like they because they don't want to waste <laughs> their time either right it's not like you're yeah. That's you know. an interesting lever, but I was saying, how would you communicate that to the other sites, like that you've shut down some sites without being tacky? You know, oh, like, I see, I see. Uh, or I, just word spreads because it's small industry. You think? No, I don't know if the word spreads. I think I probably. I'm trying to think if I actually communicated that to the other sites. I think I would say that. Um, I think then you're just working with quality sites and you're trying to boost that their enrollment and your your resources are more focused in that direction. Yeah. So automatically it kind of rises your raises your enrollment rate. So when you're sending the enrollment newsletter to your sites, it shows that you've actually your rate has climbed and you can motivate them and say, Hey, thank you. You guys have been doing a great job. I mean they may not realize like you closed a few sites. I don't think you should shame the sites you've closed. <laughs> I think that would be a very bad move. Uh, on Game on, of Thrones like, shaming, shaming, yeah, yeah, shaming <laughs> is probably not a good idea. Uh, but uh, yeah, I don't know if I would communicate about this. You know, I, I you know I think we can say, I think this would be a one-on-one communication with the sites that are not performing. So getting rid of underperforming sites is what I would focus on. Mm. Uh, and I think a lot of people just don't want to do that. It's like firing an employee. <laughs> Yeah. Nobody, nobody wants to do that. And it's actually because I think you've also invested so much emotional and time and labor and money and to get a site up and running that you don't want to cut your losses. But in some ways, it actually makes sense to to do that. Yeah, especially if you're spending like money on central ad campaigns, you know, now that money, those leads can be going to sites that that's right, have a better chance of following up on the leads. Yeah. Because I was talking to Ivan earlier, he's a social media recruiter, and he, you know, I was telling him, hey, like, when I go to these conferences, these big ones, I meet with all the recruitment vendors, and one of their biggest issues is not a tech problem, it's uh, my sites are not following up on the leads we're sending. That's, right. that's yeah. not a tech problem uh, that I can think of. 
Yeah, I can empathize with that. I think it's very hard. Like, I'm trying to hire some CRAs, and I have so many job applicants. Like, I can't even go through these. There's just so CRA? much. CRA? CRA, yeah. Wow. And I'm just, like, struggling, to be honest, to keep up with, like, screening calls. And, and I don't have a recruiter who can kind of screen them mm-hmm. at this point. So I'm doing it all by myself. And it's been a, quite a bit of work, uh, to say the least. Um, but they're in demand now. CRAs are in huge demand, no? Uh, yeah, I think, but they, like you said, they were always in demand, even before yeah. the pandemic, right? Yeah. So it's not that they were not in demand back then, right? But do you feel like when you find a very good one that you have to jump all over her or him or someone else will get them? Or like, how does that feel for you? Um, I I personally, for me, I don't, I don't want to make decisions in a rush. So I would probably, yes, I want to be, uh, you know, try to get an offer out in a couple of weeks, get, but I want to go through the interview process personally. I don't want to mm-hmm. like, oh, this guy's getting a job offer and hence I'm, you know, I need to kind of make a decision like ASAP. Yeah. I don't know if I feel like that because I really want everybody to kind of go through the process. Like, you know, there's some things that we want to make sure. And if they really want this job, and I think it's not just about a job, but it's also like, they are prospects. Like if you're working out for a private company, you know, there might be some upside with the with some stock ownership, you know, and, and maybe you care about that more than you care about uh, you know, a, a higher pay right now or just, you know, getting an offer that's out there, but you're not like really considering the whole package. That's awesome. <laughs> yeah. I would. I would. Yeah. <laughs> you, you you really want to think about all these different things, which I think people are just very short sighted. I think about that marshmallow experiment that I don't know, it's been widely published, I guess. Yeah. Where they, they gave these marshmallows to these kids and they said, well, if you wait for five minutes and, you know, you can have two. But if you, but, you know, people just want to eat that freaking marshmallow and they don't want to wait for extra right. five minutes to, to eat two marshmallows. Get the bird so, in the hand. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So I think you know, Sierras need to be a little more strategic, you know, like, yeah, don't just take on a job. And also, I think if you keep changing a lot of jobs all the time, I don't know if it really looks good on your resume and also i don't know if it you are actually giving it your 100 percent to a given role i i personally feel like i am i i i feel like i quit like quit on something i just threw in the towel because i didn't give it my full energy and time and soul and you know right like, i, I want to give it my 100 percent. i don't want to do a you know half as a job at, and then like oh that's that's what the next shiny object if that makes sense but by the same token, I mean, and thank you for your time. I, we're going to wrap up right now. By that same token, you know, I tell all the CRAs, majority of them work for big CROs, right? So mm-hmm. a lot of them, and the CROs are getting better because they have to, not because they're nice people. They have to retain their CRAs. But um, a lot of them are stressed out with their CRO. And many go on to sponsor roles and seem to love it. Um so what advice do you have for a CRO out there? Let's say they're working for one of the big CROs and they're just miserable um, with their workload. Like, do you recommend sponsor side? Absolutely. Any day of the week. I would not work for a CRO because, and I'm not saying never, but at this point in my career and right. my personal belief is that a CRO is a very service-driven industry. A sponsor is a very product-driven industry. What I mean by that is a sponsor sells medical products, drugs, devices, biologics, so on. 
CROs are selling human services. They're selling people's time, right? And sponsors, I think it's just a tough model that the CROs have because the sponsors are always going to be demanding and they have to constantly like meet these sponsor expectations, right? When you work at the sponsor, it doesn't mean you're a boss, but you you still, I think you are more focused and you you can participate in a lot of the upside of the medical product that gets sold. Uh, versus at this, I don't know about the incentives at the CRO side, aside from the bonus. I mean, yeah, maybe you can get stock and so on, but I just don't, I haven't seen like, private CROs going public and then they make a lot of money or whatever. The right? CRAs never do. Yeah. They, they never they do. Yeah. That, that's why I think, I think that's why it's more smart for a CRA to work for a sponsor. And I actually think it's more fun uh, because you can learn a lot. I mean, you can learn that also on the CRO side, but on the sponsor side, you can learn about other parts to the medical product development cycle that you may not learn at the CRO. Um, so I think I realized that when I was at Parks, I think it's this whole service industry is is very difficult. Yeah. Uh, you know, it's like you're constantly, you know, trading time for money. Yeah. Uh, and versus in the medical product side, if your product is awesome, if your data looks really good, then in the med, you know, people are, you know, patients are benefiting from your product, then you're naturally going to you know, as any employee, not just as a CRA, you're going to be benefiting from the the upside that that company experiences. I 100% agree with you. Thank you for that. Um, if I were not an entrepreneur and I were employee, I would do sponsor. Like I would do what I need to do to get in. So if that's at a site or a CRO, that's fine. Maybe I would continue at the site level, but that leads into like entrepreneurship. So I'm not cheating. I would go sponsor level, right? Sponsor level for the reasons you just said, you know, you could possibly get stock options. If you really in demand, you can like start, you could start looking at their science, just like I do due diligence on the stock and say, okay, well, I have two choices here. I like this one. This is the science. This is, you know, this is where you can like kind of take a more strategic long-term look at what they're doing. So thank you for basically saying what I've been telling people, which is, why are you miserable at a CRO? You've been there for like seven years. Move on. Go to a sponsor. Yeah. But I also think some people are just not very good at, because at, CRO, at a sponsor, it's really smaller sponsors. You kind of need to get your act together and you need to know your, you know, you need to know your stuff inside out. Like I had to learn a lot of the things that at Abbott, maybe I didn't have to do that one part of my job, <laughs> but at the sponsor, it's a much, I mean, at a smaller company, it's a, it's a smaller team and I kind of have to like figure things out pretty quickly. And if I'm not good at what I'm doing, then I'll get fired. <laughs> and right. then, you know, I think it, it's possibility. I just think people need to know that like you can't just, and I think that's where people at the CRO, they feel like they can do the monitoring or whatever very well. And then they don't need to, worry about like really understanding a lot of other things right it was a kind of aloof from the sponsor side so even if the product fails or whatever they don't have the skin in the game per se they'll be just put on a different project right cro (laughs) right right right. that the sponsor side that's kind of your your lifeline in some ways (laughs) yes you can be an intrapreneur um but basically working as if you were an owner of the company and That's some of right. these smaller ones you will be given stock options and different things like that. Um, Kunal, thank you very much. We're going to have your LinkedIn profile underneath for anybody that everybody should go 
meet Kunal, network with him. Everybody go listen to Clinical Trial Podcast. It's a really well done podcast. You and Brad Hightower have really good like podcasts. Um, I can't think of others in the space that do podcasts, but you, Brad, and then myself, where I'm just throwing up a bunch of shots at the basket, you know, you have different choices now in, in clinical research and you get different perspectives. You know, Kunal brings a brand new, fresh perspective that we've never seen actually from sponsor side. I don't think anyone has been as open as you, as far as I'm aware, probably not from a sponsor side. Yeah, I yeah, probably not. I don't think so. I think people are just generally not willing to share. <laughs> were you were you afraid when you started? Like did you have people telling you, "Hey, that's dumb. You're going to get fired, Kunal. What are you doing?" I don't know if I asked for permission. I think what <laughs> I did is I I completed a like a little book or something that I had called the uh Ship It Journal by Seth Godin. Ah. Love Seth yeah. Godin. It's, it, it, if you just Google the search, it's called the Ship It Journal. And I basically wrote everything that I would be scared of in that journal. And I think just writing it down kind of just got my fears out of the way. And then I just went all in. So, you know, and I think it was also the same time I'd started like to teach at San Jose State University. So mm. I was quite excited about, you know, sharing information and ideas. Um, I was having a very hard time at work. Um, you know, so I think that kind of gave me an outlet to to not having to think too much about work and kind of focusing on whatever I, I needed to do outside. It was like just starting a blog, you know, and uh, people do that all the time. So and, and my intent wasn't to make money or anything like that. It was just to, to spread uh, information and knowledge. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I didn't feel like anybody could stop me from, from doing that. I like that. I like that. Well, everybody, go follow, go listen, go share, go comment, go subscribe to Kunal. And then if you would like to do the same under this podcast or YouTube video, links in the show notes. Thank you very much, Kunal. We'll definitely do it again. I mean, hopefully not going to take three years this time to do the yeah. part three. <laughs> yeah, but, let's uh, stay in touch. Yeah, I'm happy. And thank you for having me on your show. And um and thanks for the advice with starting a site. And, and I just appreciate your your insights and your knowledge in this space. Um, because as you know, we're not we're all coming from different backgrounds. You know, you, you know, me knowing a lot on the sponsor side, you kind of being in the in the trenches on the site side and kind of bringing it all together. And, and I just appreciate you being that resource. Thank you, thank you. Yeah, we can do it. You know, next time focus more on the sites, so like make it more of an open podcast on that because there's a lot of people in that space too so i think you're on the right track with like like i said in the beginning becoming a generalist i mean that's an unattainable goal for everybody but we can all strive towards that and we'll we'll get close we'll get close enough right and that's that's at the end of the day what matters uh so thank you kunal thank you everybody for watching and listening and we'll catch you all later Bye bye bye